You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Jennings, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Antonio, the Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we talked about the Pacific Adventure, a voyage of English pirates into Panama and the Southern Ocean. The immediate ramifications of the Pacific Adventure, outside of Peru, were relatively minimal. By 1681, by the end of the Pacific Adventure, the colonial authorities of the West Indies had much bigger problems to deal with. Today, we're going to close out the era of the Buccaneers, and two of our largest stories are going to intersect. The pirates from last time, from the Pacific Adventure, are going to meet the mostly French and Dutch pirates who would dominate the 1680s. We're going to be moving extremely fast. I'll be throwing out names and dates at top speed, and I'll only pause if there's something I really want to touch on. So without further ado... The final episode of our series, Looking Back. This is episode 110, The Story So Far, Part 11. And to introduce this story, we need to discuss a bit about French colonial policy. The governor of Saint-Domingue was Jacques Nebou, Sieur de Ponquet. And in the past, we've made much of his wartime efforts, his willingness to hand out letters of marque to the English and the Dutch. During the war, he was under the authority of Jean, Comte d'Estrées, a marshal of France. Jean d'Estrées was a ranking naval admiral in the newly formed French Navy. But once the war ended, Governor Nepveu answered to the top political official in France, if you don't count the king, Chief Minister Jean-Baptiste Colbert. You've heard of Cardinal Richelieu? Well, Colbert held the same office, which wasn't actually an official office, but he was still the most powerful person in France after the king. And Colbert was the right person for that job at that point in time. He was an economist, and he enacted reforms that would modernize France's economy into the early modern powerhouse it became. The new economy was based mostly in colonial holdings. Mostly those were in New France or Nouveau Francais. One could argue that New France was the largest European colonial possession in North America. 
It was certainly larger than any of England's holdings, and while New Spain was larger, the territory actually held by Spain may have been significantly less. The cultural influence of France is still obvious in many parts of North America. Canada, obviously, and of course Louisiana. Nouveau-Orléans, or New Orleans, has a famous street called Bourbon Street, named after the dynasty of King Louis XIV, the Bourbon, and of course Louisiana is named after King Louis itself. But the French influence on the Midwest United States is a lot less obvious these days. It might be because of the many, many German settlers that would show up later, but we're talking about the Louisiana Purchase, after all. Cities like Detroit and St. Louis were once Fort St. Louis and Fort Detroit. Bourbon whiskey, one of the quintessentially American products, is named after Bourbon County, Kentucky, which is also named after the Bourbon dynasty. All of that, and so much more, is thanks in part to Jean-Baptiste Colbert. He was the minister who oversaw the royal adoption of both Nouveau-Francais and Saint-Domingue. With the blessing of King Louis, of course, he would appoint Jean Talon in New France and Bertrand de Oran in Saint-Domingue, and therefore he would be responsible for Jacques Nebvoux. Colbert's main accomplishment, at least in the colonies, was his oversight of the transition of the economy from piracy and fur trading to agriculture, namely, at first at least, growing tobacco. Those plantations weren't worked by slaves, though, as one might expect. The French had less inclination to use slave labor. For now, I mean, oh, it's coming. Once they transition to sugar, the French will become one of the largest employers of slave labor in the world. The problem, though, is that the Caribbean is a poor climate for growing tobacco. Last time, we discussed the host of English buccaneers that were earning paltry profits in the logwood camps, and a similar problem arose here. There were thousands of buccaneers working for paltry wages, but then things got worse. Suddenly, because the tobacco wouldn't grow, they found themselves unemployed. Jean-Baptiste Colbert was also responsible for a policy known as the Fil du Roi, or the Daughters of the King. The king's daughters were a group of about 800 unmarried French women who were sent to New France in order to encourage marriage and to expand male settlement. The Fil du Roi were all commoners, between about 15 and 20, although there were some as young as 12. Many of them were orphans, or otherwise without support, and all of them were evaluated and deemed fit for colonial life. That is to say that they were physically healthy enough to survive, that they were attractive enough to catch a husband, and that they were capable of bearing children. Each of these young women was given what's called a hope chest, which is to say a chest filled with the necessary implements of homemaking and married life that you know, might be hard to find in the colonies, as well as a dowry, and their passage was paid. The king's daughters were intended to attract men of means to the new world, men who were a cut above the fur traders and trappers and pirates that currently populated the French colonial world. When they arrived, they lived in communal homes that were run by strict women who monitored their moral and physical well-being. These homes were hubs of civilization in a wilderness of uncivilized men, 
And keep them in mind, as that trend is going to continue with French women in the New World, even beyond the official fil du But the daughters of the king did their job, in that they did attract men of a certain class to the New World. In Saint-Domingue, there was an exodus of lesser sons of minor nobles that arrived in hopes of finding a wife and establishing a family and a tobacco plantation. Now, many of them did find wives and start families, but as we know, Colbert's plans for tobacco fell apart, and what they led to was a bunch of minor nobles with new wives and small children, but no money coming in. So, you're the governor of Saint-Domingue, Jacques Napevu. You have dozens of young noblemen complaining about their lack of income, and on top of that you have thousands of buccaneers complaining quite loudly about you, about Colbert, about the king's plan to grow tobacco, and about the lack of work. And there is a very real atmosphere in the air of, well, revolution. You know, not the kind of revolution for which the French, and for that matter the Haitians, would become so well known later on, but certainly pulling a governor from his bed, stringing him up, and going out a-pirating? That was possible. So what do you do? Jacques Nebvu turned to his old habit of issuing letters of marque. And the first name that we need to discuss today who received one of these letters of marque is a buccaneer that David F. Marley called, quote, the greatest of the flibustier commanders, end quote. Chevalier Michel, Sieur de Gromont. He's one of only two pirates today that verifiably fought in the Franco-Dutch War, although he certainly wasn't the only one that actually did. And unlike most of the other pirates we're going to talk about, we do have a story about Sieur de Gromont's early life. He was the son of a minor noble, and his father was also a military commander back in France. And Sieur de Gromont was lined up to take both roles over. But according to legend, at the age of 14, the young Michel challenged the suitor of his sister to a duel and killed him. Before the body was even cold, the young Michel took a ship, went to sea, and eventually made his way to Tortuga, where he fell in with the buccaneers. The next time we hear of Michel de Gramont, he's a captain, a captain of his own ship, his own buccaneer ship, that was sailing in the French fleet that would attack Curaçao during the Franco-Dutch War. But after that battle, he continued on to Maracaibo. He was... At this point, already a well-known and beloved naval commander, and he had a sizable fleet under his command during the war. That fleet was 19 ships strong, with more than 2,000 buccaneers on board. Michel de Gramont would capture Maracaibo in an open act of war, although part of a declared war, on 14 June 1678. One citizen of the city would later recall, quote, this French enemy was so tyrannical that after taking everything the people had, he would torture them unto death, something which not even a Turk nor a Moor would do. End quote. Now that's pretty racist, but it does suggest a particularly brutal side of Michel de Gramont. However, I wonder how true it is. I mean, what is it about Maracaibo in particular that turns pirates into torturous monsters? It's where Francois Lolonet would earn his reputation as a torturous monster. It was reportedly the site of Henry Morgan's very worst offenses, and it's the only place where Michel de Gramont was specifically accused of these sort of actions. Later on, we don't hear about that. 
Now, this attack on Maracaibo certainly wasn't the last action of the war in the West Indies, but it very nearly was. The French and the Dutch would fight one more large battle and a few more small skirmishes, but then peace would come. Which brings us to the next major name we need to introduce, the other buccaneer that we definitely and definitively know participated in the war. And he actually fought on the other side from Michel de Grammont. This was a Dutch privateer named Jan Willems. He might have been fighting against the French alongside the Dutch at the battle at Curaçao, but we don't know that. We do know that he was loitering off the coast of Santo Domingo when he was approached by a Spanish messenger boat. Remember, though, he was a Dutch privateer during the war. He was fighting alongside the Spanish. They were allies. The Spanish asked him to come ashore to meet with the officer at the head of a Spanish cavalry regiment. The officer had a letter from the Spanish governor of Santo Domingo, informing the French governor of Saint-Domingue, on the other side of the island, of the peace that had been negotiated between Spain and France. Jan Willems was the man who delivered the notification to Governor Jacques Nebvoo, which effectively ended the war in the West Indies. But once the war was over, Jan Willems didn't go back to Curaçao. Instead, he chose to settle on Saint-Domingue and live as a tobacco planter, until, of course, that work dried up. When it did, he received a privateering commission and sailed out to cruise the main for a while. He upgraded his ship and then upgraded it again, both times with Spanish vessels, until we get definite word of him in 1681 off the north coast of Panama. And this is where his story intersects with that of the pirates about whom we talked last time. Jan Willems was one of the pirates waiting alongside John Coxon to rescue William Dampier, John Cook, and Edward Davis when they emerged from the jungle after the Pacific Adventure. And it was actually Willems who would go on to pick up Lionel Wafer a few months later. But before that occurred, all of the pirates gathered at the San Blas Islands to the west. Aside from Dampier, Cook, Davis, and Willems, we have a record, thanks to William Dampier, of the captains John Coxon, Jean Rose, Thomas Paine, Captain Tristan, George Wright, Jacob Evertson, and Captain Archambaud. This was the largest gathering of the Brethren of the Coast since Henry Morgan gathered his fleet before attacking Panama. And from this meeting at the San Blas Islands, these pirates set out in a truly dizzying flurry of piracy all across the West Indies. It's dizzying and infuriating. Trying to spin the following months into a comprehensive story is incredibly difficult, but we can look at the highlights. For example, Captains Wright, Archambaud, Tristan, and Rose sailed east past Portobello and Maracaibo, and there they captured a few small prizes. Then they probably received word of a rich prize sailing from Cuba to Cartagena. At least, whether or not they received word, they did rush in to intercept that prize. Now, Captain Wright was the first to arrive, and he engaged the Spanish ship. And remember, Wright was an English pirate, and he had the English pirates from the Pacific Adventure on board. Cook, Davis, Stampier, and the other 50 or so that came with them. But while he was busy fighting the Spanish, Jan Willems showed up. And there are some differing accounts. Willems might have been sailing alongside Captain Wright, or maybe not. He may, at this point, have been competing with the Englishmen for prizes. Either way, Willems joined in the fray and turned the tide against the Spanish ship. 
When she was captured, Captain Wright claimed the Spanish prize, but things were a little bit contentious here. Jan Willems thought that he deserved the ship since he'd arrived and, you know, secured the battle. But on the other hand, Wright argued that he got there first, and, well, he wasn't exactly losing the fight here. And the unspoken pirate rules were clear. If they had had laws, this would have been Wright's ship by law. He could do with this vessel as he pleased. And instead of giving it to Willems, he chose to give the ship to John Cook and the other pirates who had so recently returned from Panama. Which is obviously the choice that he should have made. John Cook needed a ship, and his crew needed a ship they were currently crowding George Wright's deck. Plus, Wright gave it to Cook, Davis, Dampier, and all of that lot on the condition that John Cook serve under him. See, Wright and Willems, Jean Rose and John Coxon, well, these were all English and French and Dutch pirates that were... They were sailing alongside one another. They were working together. But they still often organized along national lines, and Wright felt the need to build an English fleet. Largely because John Coxon went home, he didn't want to go out pirating anymore. Even more pressing, perhaps... Captains Archambaud and Tristan were both French. And they... Well, they did rescue the English after Panama, but they weren't friends with the English, and they made that clear. Jan Willems, a Dutchman, was less antagonistic, but after this engagement, and after the ship was given over to John Cook, he left the fleet. He returned to Tortuga and his comrades there. That includes Michel de Grammont, who was currently at Tortuga, Grimaud wasn't there at the San Blas Islands, nor was he on this cruise with Wright and Coxon and Archambaud and Rose and all of that lot. He was, at the time, returning from a different raid to Tortuga. His absence on this raid, though, is notable. He would have been aware of this gathering, but it seems that he disapproved of fraternization with the English. And as we'll see, Grammont's raid would further his fame and influence among the Brethren of the Coast of Tortuga. He was, at this point, not only an actual nobleman, but he was pirate nobility as well. He was as close to a leader, to an admiral, as the Brethren would have. And the Brethren of the Coast, nearly all of them were French and Dutch at this point, most of them shared Grammont's views on English privateers. The English were no longer leaders, they were outsiders to the Brethren. Grammont chose instead to fraternize with that coterie of French and Dutch pirates based on Saint-Domingue, more on them later. And Jan Willems could travel in between the groups. But for now, the group from the San Blas Islands was down to only George Wright, John Cook, Archambaud, and Tristan. Now Wright would take a few more prizes, uh, and most notable of these was a Cuban merchantman, but then the little fleet of four pirate ships sailed off to Curaçao, off to the east, to sell their cargo. However, they failed to sell it there. Pirates weren't welcomed in Curaçao. So they sailed on to a different harbor, where they were also rebuffed, and then again, and then again, and then again. All along the Lesser Antilles, they found that they were locked out of every port of call, they realized that they were no longer welcome anywhere but Tortuga and maybe Port Royal. 
and the fleet was growing frustrated here. They had all of this cargo, but nowhere to sell it. They had slaves, which everyone wanted, but they couldn't find a place to sell them. So Archambod and Tristan suggested that they sail for Tortuga, or at least for Saint-Domingue. So a quick note here about Saint-Domingue. Tortuga was no longer the capital, and Cap Francois wasn't the capital quite yet. At this moment, Petit Guave, on the northern coast of a long, thin southwest peninsula, was the home of the governor and the government. And it was there that Captains Archambaud and Tristan wanted to go. There was also a house called a hôpital that was similar, although not exactly the same, to one of those communal living quarters for the Fil du Bois, just outside of Petit Guave. It was a home for unmarried French women living near the capital, and in that way it served the same purpose, but instead of being sort of a colonial finishing school where dancing was discussed, they were more of a hostel. The women there might wear rouge and dresses, but these were hard-bitten women, the sort who would survive in a place like Saint-Domingue. And that, frankly, might have something to do with why these pirates wanted to visit Petit Guave. However, the English pirates weren't welcome in Petit Guave, for obvious diplomatic reasons. Remember, they weren't privateers. Even if they had letters of mark, according to the English, they were pirates. It was known that if they were to show up in Petit Guave, they would be arrested and turned over to Governor Lynch in Port Royal. Now, Captain Wright knew this situation full well, so he decided instead to take his cargo and sail, well, directly for Jamaica, but I'm sure that he knew how to smuggle his cargo into the fences there in Jamaica. On the other hand, John Coxon, Edward Davis, William Dampier, and all of their comrades had been in the Pacific for more than a year. At this point, it was almost two years since they had been to the civilized world. They very likely didn't see how things had changed, and it appears that Captain Wright didn't explain that to them. Or, if he tried, he didn't convince them. They sailed for Ila Veche, off the southern coast of Saint-Domingue, where they anchored in order to... Well, whatever their excuses were, and there were plenty of them, this was just a ploy so that Archambaud and Tristan could betray the English on board John Cook's ship. They invited John Cook and Edward Davis and a few other officers to join them in Petit Guave where they could enjoy, you know, wine and women or whatever. But as soon as they were gone, the French and the Dutch under Archambaud and Tristan captured the Englishmen on board their vessel. The plan, apparently, was to deliver the English leaders to the governor for arrest. Then they could take their cargo, sell it in Petit Guave, and dump the crew on some distant shore where they may never escape but the English broke free. They were being held captive aboard their own ship, and they overpowered their captors. Apparently, they were very drunk. And then they took the ship, well, they took it back, and they sailed after Archambaud and Tristan, on their way to Petit Guave, and they caught up to them. Then there was a daring nighttime rescue of their commanders, and so the entire ship and the crew could finally sail away and they made for Abraham's Key on the Mosquito Coast. Now, Dampier actually didn't go with them, nor did about a dozen others. They made their way north for Virginia. And when we return to our story overall, we'll return to that group. But before we move on to that, I want to introduce another name to today's show, 
I want to discuss the sordid tale of Captain Jean Hamlin and his ship, the Trickster. In summer 1682, the French royal merchantman La Trompeuse, or Trickster, docked in Port Royal to sell her cargo. She made for Campeche, over in Mexico, to pick up some logwood before returning to Europe. La Trompeuse was rounding the Yucatan when a virtually unknown French scoundrel named Jean Hamlin fell on her with half a dozen coastal skimmers. Hamlin outfitted his new ship and made his base on Ila Vache, off the coast of Saint-Domingue. He terrorized English ships there in the Windward Passage and captured at least 15 English merchantmen. Governor Thomas Lynch sent privateer Captain George Johnson out to capture Hamlin. Now Johnson failed to capture La Trompeuse, but he reported that she was a rotting hulk on the verge of sinking. And that was a lie. Trompeuse soundly outran Captain Johnson's man-of-war. Reportedly, she sailed three feet to each of Johnson's one feet. La Trompeuse was a fantastic ship. So Lynch sent out the big guns. First, accomplished pirate hunter Captain Matthew Tennant set out aboard the 22-gun frigate HMS Guernsey, but Hamlin managed to give him the slip as well. So Governor Lynch turned the job over to Lieutenant Governor Henry Morgan, who, as we know, knew a thing or two about buccaneers. And Morgan asked former pirate John Coxon to capture John Hamlin, but even John Coxon failed. So Morgan turned to somebody who was... Not exactly a former pirate, but he was good with the law there in Port Royal. Morgan tasked Captain Thomas Paine to track Hamlin down and bring him in. Thomas Paine, who's going to sail alongside Jan Willems in the future, also failed to catch La Trompeuse. And at this point, everyone was trying to capture Captain Jean Hamlin. The pirates who were returning from Panama, the pirates off the San Blas Islands we discussed earlier, they ran into a number of pirate hunters who were out searching for Jean Hamlin. You know, they thought they were in deep, but once they realized nobody cared what they were doing, they just wanted Jean Hamlin, they sailed on. But I do wonder how hard these privateers were actually trying. And I also wonder if Captain Morgan ever approached Michel de Gramont. But as we know, Grimal would not work for the English. Morgan did approach Jan Willems, but Willems refused even to consider the idea of going after Jean Hamlin. All this time, though, Hamlin continued to capture ships, almost exclusively English ships. His greatest prize was the Royal Africa Company slaver Thomas and William. This was an uncommonly rich prize with an incompetent crew. That's a perfect combination for the pirates. According to a report, the captain of Thomas and William, Richard North, quote, spied a ship standing towards us, which ordered Captain North to strike, hoist out his boat, and come aboard, at the same time firing a volley of small shot and the great guns. North answered the fire, but was perplexed, some of the crew saying that this was an English frigate firing to make him strike his topsail yard. Some of the crew hauled down the colors, while others presently rehoisted them. End quote. Captain North eventually made the absolutely brilliant move of sending his first mate over to La Trompeuse. Of course, the first mate was presently captured. Finally, Captain North realized his mistake, and he struck his colors. In the end, La Trompeuse made off with 65 pounds of coined gold 
that's not counting the silver and silk and ivory, nor is it counting all the slaves. Hamlin made off for the Danish Virgin Islands, which is kind of telling. Port Royal, obviously, was not a place he could go, and Petit Guave was out as well. Even Tortuga wanted nothing to do with Hamlin at this point. The Danish colonies, though, were under the governance of a man named Adolf Esmet. Esmet was known as a pirate patron. At least, when he was appointed in 1683, he became the man in the West Indies most willing to deal with pirates. Jean Hamlin sold his cargo and all of the slaves and sailed off into the Atlantic. Now, he made for the coast of Africa. There they captured a few more slave ships and a bunch more gold, and in the end his crew each earned, quote, 30-pound weight of gold a man. But Hamlin would eventually return to the West Indies. However, at this point, the tale of Jean Hamlin is essentially over. It ended when he sailed for Africa. There was a brief reign of terror, basically a season of almost constant raiding, which made Hamlin extremely rich. And he would continue to pirate on, but his glory days were over. But this season of raiding changed things for the pirates and for most of the West Indies once again. Jean Hamlin proved, beyond a shadow of a doubt, because he did not care about norms or diplomacy, that pirates were a serious problem. Neither the English Piracy Act of 1670 or that in 1677 would be sufficient to deal with them. So the Council of Jamaica received word that a writ was coming down from King Charles II himself. This is the Jamaica Act of 1683 and I'm going to read selections of it that are going to be important in the future. Quote, Contrary to His Majesty's royal proclamation, and by that they mean the 1677 Act, several of his subjects have and do continually go off from His Majesty's island of Jamaica into foreign princes' services, and sail under their commissions and cannot be restrained from so doing. Be it enacted by the governor, council, and assembly, it shall be felony for any person to serve in America in an hostile manner under any foreign prince, state, or potentate without special license. Every offender shall suffer pains of death without benefit of the clergy. It goes on, For the better and more speedy execution of justice upon those who have committed piracies upon the sea, be it further enacted that all treasons, felonies, piracies, robberies, or murders committed upon the sea shall be inquired, tried, and judged within this island, by virtue of a statute made in the twenty-eighth year of the reign of King Henry the Eighth. Be it further enacted that all and every person or persons that knowingly entertain, harbor, conceal, trade, or hold any correspondence with pirates, and that shall not endeavor to apprehend the offenders, shall be prosecuted as accessories and confederates, and to suffer such pains and penalties. All commission officers are hereby empowered to raise a number of well-armed men. In case of any resistance to His Majesty's authority, it will be lawful to kill or destroy such person or persons. End quote. I wanted to read this at a little length, because this is serious business. This wasn't the Privy Council. This wasn't the Parliament. This was drafted up by the Council of Jamaica. But the king, who wanted something done, who wanted action taken, made this a reality. This was the king himself declaring that piracy was now punishable, 
Well, it was always punishable by death, but not death this immediate or sudden. Now there would be no reason to write back to England, nor any reason to wait on justice. The pirates could just be executed, and if they resisted, they could be killed. But even bigger than all that, a lot of that is just window dressing. The real meat of this comes in the fact that the pirates were not the only people on the chopping block here. Anyone who gave haven or harbor to pirates, any person who traded with the pirates, anybody who bought or sold goods from them, anybody who communicated with them, anybody who even knew that there were pirates out there that didn't report them, well, they could also be tried and imprisoned and possibly even executed. George Wright had just brought in a cargo that he managed to sell to the fences he knew. All of the pirates knew people in the Jamaican colony who were willing to buy cargo from them. That's what made Port Royal such a lucrative place to do business, even when the governor fought against it. But now, those people were no longer willing to buy from those pirates. Port Royal was done. This act effectively ended English piracy in the West Indies. With but a very few exceptions, English pirates ended their Caribbean roving. Nearly all English pirates in the Caribbean would either retire, turn to legitimate enterprises, or they left. And a lot of them left. There were whispers of a safe harbor on the other side of the world. Englishmen had traveled there for years, and many of these English pirates would travel there and begin a new colony, a colony of their own. And moving forward, our story is largely going to be the story of English piracy, and we'll begin that story with John Cook and Edward Davis, and William Dampier, on their search for those better hunting grounds and those safe harbors. But before we get to that, which we'll discuss next time, I do want to touch on the last great French and Dutch pirates of the buccaneering age. What many would consider what I would agree with to be the last buccaneers. At this point in our story, Michel de Grammont was in Tortuga, holding court over a small, if growing, number of up-and-coming buccaneers. That included the English privateer-turned-pirate Thomas Paine. Jan Willems was in and out of there as well, but the rest were mostly Dutch privateers, who were less restricted than the English, legally speaking. And there are four names we need to know here. Nicholas von Horn, Jacob Evertsen, Mikhail André Zun, and Lauro de Graaf. Now, none of these names were famous before their raiding would make them infamous. In fact, aside from de Graaf, we know virtually nothing about their early lives. Jacob Evertsen, for example, burst onto the scene in 1680 when he captured an English bark in the Windward Passage. Henry Morgan himself sailed out after Jacob Evertsen, in 1680, he was acting governor, and he probably wanted to prove to his bosses that he was an anti-pirate now. According to official records, Morgan, quote, manned a sloop with 24 soldiers and 36 sailors, which about noon came up with Everson in Bull Bay. Letting the King's Jack fly, they boarded him. They received three muskets shot, slightly wounding one man, and returned a volley, killing some and wounding others of the privateers. Everson and several others jumped overboard and were shot in the sea near shore. End quote. Now, if that were the case, if Henry Morgan killed this pirate after taking one single ship, he would not be a name we need to know. There were a bunch of guys like that around this time. But that was a lie. Henry Morgan said he had definitely killed Jacob Evertson, but he didn't. 
Evertson survived. Now, he was probably at the failed 1682 blockade of Santiago de Cuba, led by Michel de Grammont, and most of the people we're talking about here were there. Grammont was sailing his flagship, the Colbert, which was named after the minister, and Nicholas von Horn was definitely there aboard his ship, the humbly named St. Nicholas. Now, those three captains failed in their blockade, but they sailed south. They had to pass by Port Royal, though, and they sent word to Governor Lynch, who was now in charge of the island, that they meant no harm to England. They were just passing by, hoping if he would allow them to buy provisions, but at the very least, hoping for safe passage. Instead, they were on their way to the Bay of Honduras to meet Lauro de Graff and Mikhail André Zoom. These two captains were not yet famous, but at this point they were building a fleet to do something that would make them famous. They were going to attack Veracruz in the Gulf of Mexico. Now, Lauro de Graff is the most famous pirate of this age, and his backstory is troublesome. He was Dutch, probably. He was married in the Canary Islands to a Spanish woman in the 1670s, probably. He was a merchant sailor turned privateer, probably. He might have been biracial, and some scholars have attributed his actions to that background, but nobody can say for sure. None of this is provable. We can't track any of his early life truly successfully until his meeting in the Bay of Honduras here in 1683. Now the newcomers, or more specifically Nicholas von Horn, captured a Spanish ship while they were all there in the Bay of Honduras. And this angered Lauro de Graff. His plan was to lay low, and laying low does not exactly include capturing Spanish ships which could blow the whole operation. So de Graff and Mikhail André Zun left. They left Grammont and von Horn there in the Bay of Honduras. But Grammont caught up with de Graff at Roatan in modern-day Honduras and talked some sense into them. So André Zun, Grammont, de Graff, Nicholas von Horn... They began what would be the last large conclave of the Brethren of the Coast, similar to Morgan's rallying off the coast of Saint-Domingue, and similar to that that took place on the San Blas Islands. Michel de Grammont on the Colbert, Nicholas von Horn on the St. Nicholas, Jacob Evertson was there in a 26-gun bark, Jan Willems showed up in a 40-gun frigate, Lauro de Graff on La Francesca, a recently captured Spanish galleon, Michel de Grammont on a bark of his own, the English captains George Spur and Jacob Hall, and at least three or four more. This conclave agreed to the code and set out to attack Veracruz. Their attack was two-pronged, one by land and one by sea, to take place at the same time, and it ensured that Veracruz, one of the greatest cities in New Spain, would fall. The pirates rounded up at least 4,000 hostages there, and put everybody together in the local church. They plundered Veracruz for days and carried off tons of gold and silver, but they received word that the Armada Barlovento was bearing down on them. Now, Michel de Grammont was on the coast, leading the men there, and once he received word, he mounted a horse and galloped into town, where he gathered all of the prisoners and raised the call for every pirate to make for their ships. They did so, they moved fast, and they set off before the Armada arrived, and they made for the Isla de Sacrificios. Now, personally, if you're interested in this story, I would go back and listen to the episode on this story, but the Isla de Sacrificios had an old, 
probably Mayan temple on it where sacrifices had taken place, and the evidence of that was clear, and the symbolism of that will become clear. The pirates guarded the harbor at Sacrificios and set up a camp, and then they sent word to Veracruz that demanded a ransom for all of the prisoners, important men and women, that they had taken with them. And the pirates waited on a reply. And they waited. And they waited. Finally, Von Horn grew impatient at all of this waiting and decided to cut off a dozen heads of their prisoners and sent them back to Veracruz. The Isla de Sacrificios, right? Lauro de Graff caught wind of this little massacre and drew steel on Nicholas Von Horn. The two pirates fought a duel there on the beach of the Island of Sacrifices, and in the end, Lauro de Graff opened up Von Horn's torso with his sword. I think it's likely that de Graff had been waiting to do this for some time. The two men didn't much like each other. But eventually, Von Horn's ploy seems to have worked. They received their ransoms and returned the prisoners, and the pirates sailed off to disperse their plunder in safety. Now most of the fleet would go on to do another amazing raid. They struck Cartagena in November of 1683. They took her in much the same fashion, and Cartagena has always been, much like Havana and, to a lesser extent, Veracruz, one of those untouchable ports of call, one of those places where the Armada de Barlavento might show up and kill all of you. Most pirates, even pirates like Morgan, feared to attack them. But these pirates did so, and they succeeded. And these weren't the last of the buccaneer raids, but they were the last great raids of the buccaneering age. The rest of them would be smaller. Some of them would be privateering raids, not pirate raids. And in the end, there would be no climax to the stories of these men. The Buccaneering Age, the Brethren of the Coast, and the stories of all of the names we've talked about today, well, they're going to end not with a bang, but with a whimper. Many of the pirates, Jan Willems and Thomas Paine most notably, sailed for the tiny and inconsequential Dutch and later English port at Nassau. They would raid St. Augustine in Florida, but the Spanish would counterattack, and most of the pirates on Nassau, these pirates on Nassau, fled, and many of them would go to North America. Most of them went to Carolina or Providence in New England. There they were arrested or disappeared into the Americas, never to be heard from again. Other pirates instead decided to buy into the brave new world that was being built in the Americas. Both Lauro de Graff and Mikhail Andrezun would buy sugar plantations and establish a township that would later become the capital of Haiti. They decided to retire and grow sugar. They married. De Graff famously married a French woman named Anne. Now, Anne was not one of the fiddle du but she probably came from Hôpital down near Saint-Domingue. She was a similar case. She was a French Huguenot from the old country. She was one of the first waves of educated, genteel women who were sent into the New World. However... Anne was a bit tougher than those women up in North America. When war broke out with Spain, de Graff was conscripted to go fight in that war, and Anne and the other women who were left there in their hometown were attacked, and she rallied the women and boys and old men to fight back, and then instead of waiting for another attack, she led them out to go join their husbands. 
Anne would become known to history as Anne Levu, or Anne, desired by God, and she would sail alongside Lauro de Graff, the last great buccaneer. Now much of this is shrouded in legend and later lies, but Anne is rumored to have shared command with her husband, and on board the ship she became something of a totem, something of a good luck charm to the men on board. They believed that her presence saw them to victory over and over again. And now this next bit is according to legend, but Anne Ulevu at one point took up her husband's sword when he fell in battle and led the crew to a great pirate victory. But that is only legend. Because Anne Ulevu, Lauro de Graff, and their children will appear in Nouveau Francais around the year 1700. See, they would be chased off by the Spanish and, later on, by anti-piracy French governors, and they would be forced to hide to take refuge in the Delta. While he was there, Lauro found work with an explorer that would settle most of the Gulf Coast of Louisiana, and eventually, Lauro de Graff and Ulevu, this explorer and a few other Frenchmen, would establish the city of Biloxi and live there until their dying day. This is a happier end to a story than most pirates receive. Michel de Gramont, on the other hand, did not sail for Nassau. He did not retire in the Carolinas. He did not buy into the brave new world. Instead, this man who despised the English would be a harbinger for the English actions to come. He attempted the feat of Jean Hamelin by sailing for the coast of Africa. Neither of these Frenchmen who despised the English knew it, but they were drawing a road map for the trend of piracy to come. However, in the end, Michel de Gramont was lost at sea, off the coast of Africa, and never heard from again. I do like to imagine that that's not the case. I like to imagine that Michel de Gramont rounded the Cape of Africa and settled down on a little island just off the coast of Madagascar. He probably didn't, but next time we're going to look at some of the first pirates who did. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has given us a review wherever it is you listen to the show, and everybody who has recommended this show. Without all of you, I couldn't do this. I'd also like to thank everybody for their patience with these look-back episodes, now, though, we begin to move on. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.
him live on in legend tonight.